to Teen People, the podcast where I track down real people who were in Teen People magazine. I'm Anna Soper, and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. In the year 2000, Teen People's then-publisher Anne Zarin said presciently, We make celebrities real, and real teens celebrities. Teen People published their teenage contributors' full names, ages, and locations, making many of them pretty easy to find online today. My guest in this episode is Jaya Saxena, who was in Teen People when she was 17. Today, Jaya is a published author of nonfiction and is a senior writer at Eater.com. Jaya lives in New York and is good friends with my previous guest, James Frankie Thomas, who we refer to in this episode as Frankie. Amazingly, I connected with Jaya and James separately, not knowing either of them knew each other until after I'd interviewed James. Small world, eh? When I contacted Jaya, she had forgotten she was in Teen People, and I had to jog her memory with the details. I was around a lot of adults who worked for these magazines, she told me, so I probably did talk to someone. Jaya was featured in the Teen People Summer Music Special of 2004 in a story called Hotspots New York City, where she recommended her favorite music store. She said, Other music is like a fun, messy library for music. You almost never find what you were looking for, but you always find something you never knew you wanted. Jaya spoke with me in October 2021. calling the store a mess from what I recall it was actually a very nice record store (laughs) but um yeah so basically I, I grew up in New York City I grew up in Manhattan and my mom worked in magazines I think for for most of my childhood she worked at Entertainment Weekly um as like a fact checker and a reporter but you know, all of her friends who who worked at that magazine would then, you know, as happens in media, get jobs at other magazines. And um, I think a lot of them were either younger than her or it always shook out that I was sort of one of the few children around. I think like a, a lot of them didn't have kids until way later. And so if they, yeah, we knew people who worked for 17 YM, teen people. And so anytime they sort of needed access to a teenager at some point, like I was an easy teen to get. So I have, I think that's why I didn't remember it because I, I, this sounds like such a weird humble brag and it's not, but like I have been, I do remember being in other teen magazines, just with my mom's friends being like, I need someone to listen to this single and tell me like a teen's opinion on this this music or this fashion trend or something like that. Similarly, I, I went to high school relatively close to Union Square in Manhattan, where a lot of these magazines would do sort of 
scouting for teens because that's where a bunch of like kids would hang out. So I had friends who were picked up and being like, do you want to model some jeans for us? Like, do you want to let us do prom makeup on you and like photo shoot you for things? So this was just like somehow like an experience that multiple people I knew had. So yeah, that specific one, I completely forget who was working there at the time, you know, what they asked me, but I do remember other music and I remember loving that record store. Did you by any chance go to the Quaker school? I did. I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cause I recently talked with Frankie Thomas. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. So Frankie is one of my best friends uh, from, from high school. And yes, they are one of the ones who got plucked for the prom thing, which I remember very vividly. Uh, oh my God. I remember the day that happened and them coming back and describing all of the like makeup secrets that everybody was doing. So yes, because we, we were really nearby there that continued, that happened to multiple people. <laughs> I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before. I that was when I realized that you and Frankie knew each other because I was going back on their Twitter and then I saw you replied to one of their tweets. I was like, "Oh, they know each other." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's really fun. I think I remember recently, like Frankie posted, they actually have the magazine that they were in, and everybody was like, "Oh my God, look at you with this little child! Like this is ridiculous." And and I think it's so, always so funny just to think about like how the sausage gets made because I realized that before I was ever tapped to like comment on any of these things, I would read teen magazines or I would read like the advice or the you know the shocking letters that people would send into Cosmo. And being like, who are these people? How do they find them? Like, how do they, when they say like real girls who get to like try on clothes, I'm like, wow, where do you do that? And now I'm like, no, they were posted up at malls across the country. They were in every park where kids were skateboarding, like everywhere. But it is very fun to sort of like, I think it was a big thrill for a lot of people to be able to be like, you want me? Like... <laughs> Yeah, that's what Frankie said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would stand outside high schools and scout girls. Yeah, no, it was just such a, which now again is sort of like, that's a little creepy. Like, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a little creepy. Did you read teen magazines at that point in your life? I did. Um, I think, you know, because of my mom's job, they they were sort of always around. Like, they we had access to a lot of magazines but also like I am about to turn 35 so when I was a teenager like I definitely had the internet I spent all of my time on AOL instant messenger um but like the the version of the internet that I was on you know we were just starting to blog like toward the back end of my high school years and, um, you know, like some people had live journals, some people had blog spots, but like the big, you know, magazines and stuff and, and sort of culture websites that were digital only was, was not a thing. So if you wanted to find out like music reviews or what shows were coming to your neighborhood or like, right, music, movie, book reviews, or just like, and right, looking at any of the sort of teen 
fashion stuff. Um, and then I think especially not necessarily a teen magazine, but in high school being like, okay, we're going to get a copy of Cosmopolitan and read all the sex tips, even though looking back, they were all nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that was where you went. <laughs> and you mentioned that you were often, um, you often appeared in other teen magazines. My hunch is that teen people was unique in that they printed people's full names and ages mm -hmm. and locations. Um, and I'm not sure, I did have a subscription to YM before I had a subscription to teen people. And I remember there being this sort of like, you know, it would say Jennifer 16, but this, the teen people actually yeah. to, to describe people to the point where here 20 years later, I can Google someone and, you know, stalk their Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Off the top of my head, I don't remember if other magazines did that or even if they they published the full name, they wouldn't publish location or there would be like one thing, which, you know, in hindsight, publishing a teen girl's full name, age and location. <laughs> I, I feel like we have much different practices around like safety and privacy, but also I feel like the um the risks at the time were were less obvious or it, it was less dangerous. Like I did not, I think it was still at a time of internet usage where the prevailing thing was like, do not use your real name. Do not tell anybody who you are. Don't trust anybody you meet on the internet. And so none of my actual information was on my like AOL instant messenger profile, which was, I think the only sort of public thing that I had. Whereas now I think so much of it is like, well, if you have an Instagram account and a Twitter account and all this stuff, and none of them uses your name, like, isn't that suspicious? Like, why can't we find you? Um, and of course we're at a time where everybody is constantly I, you know, I have done this, everyone I know has done this, of like made good friends primarily off the internet. <laughs> yeah. And, and also we live in a social media context where people's identity um, is verified through our email addresses, our phone numbers, yeah. people can get blue ticks next to their name um, and therefore gain this sort of level of authority that the rest of us do not have. Um, and so, yeah, it is a completely different internet climate now than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Do you have um, a copy of the Teen People magazine that you were in on this occasion? I do not. Um, yeah, this, <laughs> as I think evidenced by the fact that I was like, wait a second, I did what? Uh, <laughs> no, I did not. I do not have, or I did not keep the copy of this. <laughs> like once you mentioned what had happened, I do vaguely remember being asked by one of my mom's friends about like, what were my favorite record stores? And I remember recently at that point, I believe it was, yeah, I believe I, I was 17 in there. And so I remember for my 17th birthday, I had gotten a gift certificate to other music. And the person who gave it to me was like, this is a really cool store and you're really into music. So like, you will just go in there and find something. And now I am racking my brain. I wish I remember what I got. 
I might have gotten a Shins album. I do remember going in and sort of being like, okay, I am going to, instead of buying an album from a band that I know that I love, I am going to like read some reviews or just like see what is in their like recommended section and like get something that I think looks cool, but that I don't really know anything about. Uh, but yeah, I think that was fresh in my mind that I had had this like, you know, sizable gift certificate to go spend on a bunch of CDs and that I had a really good time doing that. <laughs> what music were you into at that time? I mean, I definitely listened to, um, I listened to a lot of pop punk in my teen years. Uh, I was a big, big Blink-182 fan, but then I think I think that was the first band that I became like obsessed, obsessed with. But then I did that thing where I was like, okay, well, what is this band site as like all of their influences? And so they, I went out and I like bought records of like The Clash and The Descendants and like all these other bands that they had ever mentioned in interviews that they listened to. And then, uh, you know, and and then like the contemporary bands that they liked, I started listening to them. And then I started looking through their things of like what other bands they were into and just, it sort of flowed from there. So I feel like a lot of pop punk, a lot of, um, a lot of sort of the garage rock revival that was going on in the early 2000s, like living in New York city, it was impossible to avoid the strokes. Um, it's like the strokes, the white stripes, the shins, as I mentioned, like all of those bands. The bravery. Um, yes. Oh my God. The bravery that came on like a, a Spotify mix the other day. And I was like, oh, wow. I like completely forgot about this band, but this is great. So it's like a lot of stuff like that. But then I think I always tried to like, listen, I, you know, I never wanted to like put myself in a box with things. So like, I don't know. I was really, always really obsessed with like Amy Mann and like Joni Mitchell, and there are a lot more singer songwriters that I really enjoyed. I tried always to listen to a mixture of like modern music and older music. I, I still definitely listen to a mix. I worry sometimes that I am hitting that thing of like being in my thirties and having my taste sort of like calcify. Like I'll be like, oh, I'm going to listen to this band's like new album. And I go back to an album that came out in 2010, not realizing that they had like two more albums that came out since then. <laughs> I think I listen to a lot more, like a lot more hip hop than when I was younger. I think like, like I, I still try to like expand the range of what I'm listening to. Like I remember as a kid, I was always really derisive of like country music and then I try to be like, wait, no, there is actually like country music that I like too. Like, I don't want to completely disregard a genre. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of like what I have been listening to recently or if there are any like new albums that I've been listening to. Like, great, right, like the new Lucy Dawkins album I really love. I'm always happy when Fiona Apple comes out with stuff. Um, my friend Dalton came out with an album recently that I really enjoy called Demons and Dogmen. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like a, a whole range. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's funny because um, here we are talking about a brick and mortar store yeah. uh, selling music and a monthly print magazine. Yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, it may because I, I, you know, other music 
I forget when it closed, but it closed a while back. And a bunch of the music stores that I went to as a kid closed. Like there used to be a big Virgin mega store in Union, in Union Square that closed down. There was a place called Sounds on St. Mark's Place in the East Village that closed and a bunch of other record stores around there. And it's funny because I, I know that people always have these very like hand ringy things of like, oh no, how are young people gonna find music if they don't have like a, a physical location to go to, to look for it. And I'm like, I have no worries that teens are finding out how to find new music, like on Spotify, on TikTok, on like any other places, they know how to find new music. What I'm worried about is how I find new music because I definitely grew up used to being like, okay, I'm going to, the record store, I'm going to look through things and I'm going to like, you know, go to the the bin where I can get a CD for $3 and I'm going to pick up something that looks interesting and like, or I'm going to save up my money. So when an album comes out and everything, I'm going to listen to it. And now I feel I'm like, oh yeah, I have forgotten how to do that. Or like, I do not know how to do that with the tools that are available to me right now. It's funny you talk about when other music closed, because I did look that up. They closed in 2016. Yeah. Because um, I was curious when I was doing yeah. my research for this interview, I was like, are they still going? No, they're not. No. <laughs> and it reminded me of when I moved to Toronto in 2006, I lived near Young Street and I used to go to Sam the Record Man and it was iconic in Toronto Yeah, um, and and is now also gone. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really sad. There were all these places that would just, oh my God. And I remember my mom, as part of her job, she would get sent CDs all the time from like, you know, from press people being like, here's an advanced copy of this album that's coming out. And so we would just have these like mountains of CDs at home and that we would go to these secondhand CD shops and she'd just be carrying like tote bags full of them to sell them. One, because it was a great way to make extra money. And two, it was just like, we literally did not have room for this in our house. I do miss sort of like the physicality of both like a CD, though a lot of people are doing vinyl again, and that's really great. Um, and a magazine. It was I was in Barnes and Noble the other day and looking through the magazine section. And I was like, it's robust. There are still hundreds of magazines here and there's some really cool ones and like whatever, but they, it's also sad sometimes to see, I feel like a lot of, a lot of women's magazines or just a lot of magazines that I remember from when I was a kid are sort of like, they're smaller now, there are a lot more ads, they're, you know, they don't come out as often. And obviously I work in media, so I understand why, like I understand what's at play here, but it's just sort of like, oh man, like this feels like a bummer where I wanted to buy this magazine and then it just doesn't feel like it has any like heft to it. But like everybody else, I'm online all the time and that's where I get all of all of the stories and advice and things like that. It's funny. I I always joke that like I followed in my mom's footsteps with things, but I think from a I'm a I'm a writer and I think from a young age I realized that like 
it was both something that I enjoyed doing and that I was good at. And that specifically nonfiction writing um, and sort of everything that falls under that umbrella, whether that's like memoir and personal essay writing or reporting, you know, was something that really interested me. So I think I just like continued to like through college, just was trying to like figure that out and look at opportunities. And I, I definitely had a leg up in that some of like my mom's friends could like give me advice or keep their eye out for like internships and things like that. But then, yeah, I had my first internship out of college that I just found on my own at that website Gothamist, um, which is still going strong and just sort of tried to, you know, and I was freelance for a long time, but just tried to keep going, going from there. In the last few years, you've gotten into long form writing. You have a couple of books that you've published. Yeah. Um, yeah. My latest one is crystal clear. It is um, it's an essay collection, but it is uh, each essay is centered around the supposed metaphysical properties of different crystals and sort of exploring like I I do not believe that crystals have any inherent magical properties but I do think it's really cool that humans have like come up with this mysticism around rocks because I just think rocks are really cool <laughs> it's a dorky little um hobby of mine uh collecting rocks and so yeah, just sort of exploring the properties that we've assigned to these stones and like why we would do that, like how it serves, how does it serve humanity to say that rose quartz represents unconditional love? And and where do these stories come from when we say that it's very much the reporter and me being like, you go to a crystal store and they're like, oh, this amethyst is for like balance, like ancient wisdom says that it's for balance. And I'm like, okay, but who said it? And when did they say it? And how did they come up with that? And why are you being so vague? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it is, that was a very fun, fun project to work on. I read your essay about the gem and mineral room in the, is it the Museum of Natural History? The Museum of Natural History, yeah. And um, you were describing how, um, the thing that fascinates you about rocks is that they're not living, but they're like they're alive in terms of how we relate, humans relate to them, and also just the, the way that they 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 grow and behave, and yet they're yeah. not alive. Yeah, I think it's really, and I'm I'm forgetting the the three things scientifically you need to have to define something as like being alive, but. Um, you know, right, they don't breathe in any way, but like, they do grow, and they do change, and they do respond to external stimuli. Um, you know, you see, you go to these exhibits, or if you ever see rock formations in nature, and you see all the striations of like, where the pressure changed, so it turned a different color, or it turned fully into like a different material, like it or a different element started interacting with the carbon, um, with any of this or the, the silicone and turned it into a slightly different material. Like it's really fascinating. And I love like, 
I'm like, I have a couple of crystals on my desk and like one of them is blue, one of them is orange and one of them is pink. And I'm just like that these three things that look so different are all under the category of like dirt <laughs> or like rock, you know, there's like so much diversity into it, which I think that obviously I think people understand on a more intuitive level, like the great diversity of plants that exist out there, or obviously animal life, or even, you know, something like coral, you can so clearly see like, wow, anytime I travel from the east to the west coast, like the birds are different here, the, the trees, the way the forests look is completely different here. I feel like that's something that a lot of kids are always really into, like, when I, no, when I was a kid and like I went to the museum and I, I, I thought this was like such a cool exhibit and I had a little rock collection, you know, I find it so funny because I, I was talking to some friends about this where I feel like, especially as a, as a young girl and maybe a teenage girl, some people saw my obsession with gems and thought like, oh, maybe you could like make jewelry out of them or, you know, assuming this like beauty thing rather than being like, maybe you should be a geologist, like maybe looking into the science aspect of something that is something you might be interested in. And not that I want to be a geologist. I think I would have told anybody right at that point, like, no, I, I am not interested <laughs> in like going into science. Kids get like really, really interested in that stuff. And I'm like, oh, what would happen if we like encourage that curiosity more? Mm. And you were writing in that essay about um, uh, this anxiety that you felt because they were renovating this yeah. museum, this this exhibition um, space. Yeah, um, which they have recently reopened, finally. And I have to say that the what they actually wound up building versus what the initial plans looked like is totally different and i really really love what the museum did it, it is such a cool space they do so much it's really well organized it does not look like i think i accuse of the plans like it does not look like an apple store uh, <laughs> but i do you know i definitely do still miss the old gem room because it was like, it was dark and it was carpeted and it was just sort of this very weird space. And, and so clearly, I think it was mo mostly like, I can't believe they haven't torn this down already. So I just like cherish that this still exists because it seems like, you know, it is almost just like rotting in this corner of the museum, but it felt so unlike the rest of the museum. So I really, I really loved it there. I think it makes sense for a gem room to feel like a cave or sort yeah. of room-like and have this kind of dark aesthetic and, and the soft carpeting underneath. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, the new one, it doesn't necessarily feel like a cave though. There are separate rooms you can go into that are a little darker that help you see stones that like react under UV light and infrared light and things like that. Um, but it is still, I think, very, almost like very cluttered. And that's something that I really like about it, where it's not just like, and here's one stone and here's another stone and here's all this space between them. Like they're all piled up on top of each other. So you can just 
you really do get a sense of this like amazing diversity. Mm, like a sort of an ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Just getting back to your career, I find it really interesting to think about you in a way following in your mother's footsteps, but the media context in which you work and the context in which she has worked are very, very different. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember that was something um, that always came up where like, I went to college from 2004 to 2008. And obviously then you had like the recession starting right after I got out of college. And even then magazines were just changing so much and everyone was finally being like, okay, we have to have a, a website. We have to like put things online and maybe we put things online that we don't put in the magazine because we have the ability to like do more. But then also that extremely led to a lot of like labor problems where everybody was expected to produce for both like the magazine and the website without any other like considerations or pay bumps or anything like that. Not to say that I haven't had a great amount of privilege or benefited from, you know, connections or just like tips and support that my my mom and her friends and colleagues have been able to offer me. But I do really feel like when I was coming out of college and I was trying to ask people like, okay, what it, what does the industry look like? Like, what do I need to do? And they're all like, oh, I have no fucking idea. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, how, how do I get started right now? And they're like, I have no clue because when I was getting started, things look completely different. I do not know how you get in on, I, like, I do not know how these websites work. I don't know how you get in on that. Good luck in figuring it out. Like we're rooting for you. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who are just like, everything was changing so fast. There was no advice that you could give anyone or if there was, it would change in a year. So yeah, I really feel like I have had to navigate a, a similar, I mean, there are things that are always going to be similar about the industry, but there, yeah, a lot of things that like nobody ever could have prepared me for. <laughs> I'm a senior writer at eater.com, um, which is really fun because I feel like, you know, I write about food. Obviously it's a website that covers food and food culture and restaurants, but, you know, I'm not a restaurant critic. I am not reporting on restaurant openings and closings and sort of specific things like that. I get to report on the the ways that food intersects with other parts of culture. And so I've been doing a lot of like because food, it you know, it intersects with labor. It intersects with immigration. It intersects with um, climate. Right, climate completely, like a lot of other cultures and, you know, racism and, and sexism, like when people talk about feeling a connection to their culture's food and then having access to that or, or not, you know, that's a huge issue. It's really cool because I actually do feel like I get to talk about all of these other issues through the lens of food. And then especially this past, you know, year and a half during the pandemic with the restaurant industry and various food industries hit so hard by COVID, 
a lot of opportunity to do labor reporting around that, a lot of opportunity to really look at like, okay, what are the systems that allow us to eat the way they do? And, you know, are those actually sustainable? Like, how do they need to change to make sure we're, you know, people aren't being exploited? Um, and so there are a lot of like big, interesting conversations around that going on right now. So yeah, it's it's been something I've really loved. And I just, I want to be able to continue to, I don't know, think about sort of those those big issues. Do you know Lisa Wong Macabasco? I know the name, yes, okay. but I do not know her personally. <laughs> I, I talked with her last year, and she is also a food writer who writes about broader issues. So yeah. it's interesting to hear you describe that same impulse. <laughs> I don't know if most people would think about food writing um, and connect it with broader themes as she does in her work, as you seem to do. Yeah, and I feel very lucky because I do think that Eater, that has sort of been their their sort of MO from, from the beginning, you know, that, it, that is certainly how they approach things. But I also think that like food writers that I really admire are people who have done food writing and it's just like the, the best food pieces are always like, they're actually about something much deeper or much bigger than just like a food trend or, or something very focused. And I always think it is, yeah, the best pieces are always ones that wind up talking about like, here's this thing that's really important to us. Like at the base level, we need food to survive. Um, and then obviously we have built industries and cultures and identities around this. Um, so no, it's a really, God forgive the pun, but it's a really meaty subject. <laughs> Fantastic pun. <laughs> and that's how I got this job. <laughs> you were talking a few minutes ago about uh, when you were coming up and you were asking people for advice, people in your industry. Mm -hmm. uh, what advice would you give somebody who is just starting out as a writer today? Oh, man. Well, I mean, again, I feel like things are constantly changing. Um, but at least like, I think, uh, the, we at least sort of know the shape of the internet. Um, though, I don't know, every site is always going to pivot to video at some point, but I do think that something that is, that is very useful is to like, when I was, when I was younger and I sort of started freelancing, I definitely saw it as like every other writer was my competitor. And I think it's really easy to start feeling that way because, right, a lot of websites do have budgets. They do have limits as to what they publish. And so it can really start to feel like the zero-sum game of if somebody else gets something, you don't get something. But I think once I realized that, like, being able to connect with other freelancers and build those, build those connections is great, not just in your general career, because I've had plenty of times where it's like, here's somebody that uh, was another writer that I knew, and then they got a job at, as an editor somewhere, and they remembered me and liked working with me when we were both writers, and so reached out to me 
to see if I wanted to pitch them things because you never know where those relationships and connections are going to lead to down the road. But also I think coming back to somewhat like the labor aspect of it, there has been this huge movement in media over the past handful of years to organize and unionize and sort of writers and digital media workers recognizing that they should be standing in solidarity with each other. And so I think whether you're a staff writer or whether you're a freelancer, a photographer, an illustrator, you know, wherever you stand in this world, realizing that like fighting together for better treatment from the industry, you know, this, this helps everybody. It's not just a matter of I'm going to go out and try to find the best rate for my work. It's like, how can we make rates and treatment and protections better for everyone? The more you have that in mind, it's going to be a great way to build community. It's going to be a great way to network. It's going to be a great way to just make this actually a sustainable career rather than every man for himself sort of sort of thing. How have you been building community during the pandemic in your field? It's hard. I mean, the pandemic certainly makes it harder because everything happens over Zoom. Um, before I started at Eater, I was a I was a founding member of the Freelance Solidarity Project, which is a um, uh, it is now union officially unionized under the National Writers Union, and I'm also now very active uh, in the Vox Media Union because um, that is Eater's parent company. It is really difficult, though, if you don't have the opportunity to have even things like in-person meetups. And I know even those require you to be in like a certain location, which can be discriminatory in its own way. But I do think that having like a happy hour once a month and, and just like seeing people face to face is really great. As, on a more practical sense, I do think if you are, at least if you are a writer, delivering clean copy on time is going to be worth so, so much more to any editor than like your masterpiece magnum opus that is three months late and you have not communicated with your editor about your changing needs or deadlines. Like be communicative with your editor, spell check yourself and like meet your deadlines. And I think that accounts for like so, so many people like will call you back if that happens. <laughs> I'm going to jump to another advice question. You were 17 when you appeared in Teen People magazine. What advice would you give to your 17-year-old self today? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, that's something where it's like, I don't know, it's like, go to therapy earlier. I, <laughs> it could be something as, as much as, you know, I, I don't know if I would have heard this advice when I was 17, but go easier on yourself. I was a, I was a kid who put a lot of pressure on myself to sort of follow the rules and to not make anybody mad um, and to sort of be like a good kid. Yeah, like don't be so afraid of getting in trouble because trouble isn't real. If someone else gets mad at something, it's fine. 
I mean, it has taken me literally enough, you know, another doubling of my life since I was 17 to sort of really start to figure that out, you know, which is not to say like, go around hurting everyone's feelings and breaking every single rule and stuff. But like, the rules are not set in stone. Listen to what you want. And if that contradicts with what someone else wants out of you, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Um, also maybe figure out 17 year old Jaya that you were queer a little bit earlier, uh, <laughs> might've helped explain some things. How would that have helped you to have known earlier? Oh man. I think just, um, you know, it's so funny. I feel like this is something that, uh, fellow, fellow guest, uh, Frankie Thomas and I have talked about, um, when we were growing up and I don't know, I actually don't know how old you are or like if you would have experienced this the same way, the messaging around queerness was extremely like, it was extremely the born this way narrative. Like when I was young, sort of the big mainstream fight was for legalized same-sex marriage. And the, the big talking point around that of for any, you know, any same-sex couple was like, we're just like you, except that from, you know, it's like, I've always known that I was gay, or I've always known that I was a lesbian from day one, this was something that I was aware of. And like, I I shouldn't be punished for something that is like, so innate to my being, Um, which obviously is true for a lot of people, a lot of people do know, from day one, sort of what their orientation is, and are unwavering. But you know, as I got older and older, I realized like, the I, the bar having to be like knowing since you were five years old that you were gay and never having like unwavering confidence in that. I'm like, I don't feel about any part of my identity that amount of confidence or assurance. And so it's like, what a what a high bar. But I think growing up, I very much had the idea of like, well, I haven't had I'm like, I do not think I am a lesbian, or if I were, I would have known since I was a child, and I do not feel that way. So that's it. And I just had no idea how to parse or even identify any other feelings that I had, because that was sort of the, that was sort of the framework that it fit into. I don't know. I think it's just, it would have helped in the way of like sorting out any feelings about yourself would have helped. And I think just given me a sense of like, oh, there, you know, yeah, there, there is a word for this. There is a place for this and, and probably would have led me to seek out queer community earlier. You know, I do feel very lucky because even though I figured it out later in life, I, uh, I have an amazing community that involves a ton of queer people. And yeah, like, assuring my 17 year old self that you are going to be fine. (laughs) Like you're gonna, even if you take none of this advice, you are going to wake up 35 and be pretty, pretty happy with where you are. I think this is the perfect time for me to have contacted you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On the cusp of your 35th birthday. I know I'm feeling very introspective about this because it really is this like, you know, this is half a lifetime ago. And 35 is one of those big numbers where you're like, oh God, what does it all mean? Like, 
Yeah, I turned 35 in July and I had the same reckoning. Oh my God. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'm three months in and it's fine so far. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> yes. Well, it's been so great to talk with you. Thank you again for taking the time. Oh my God. Thank you for having me on. This is really fun. I've put a link to Jaya's website in the notes for this episode, where you can find all the details on her books and her bylines. If you haven't heard my conversation with Jaya's friend James, I recommend it. It's my most ambitious episode yet. Weaving an interview, a dramatic reading, sound effects, and song into an atmospheric portrait of trans visibility. James modeled prom makeup in the March 2004 issue of Teen People. Find out how that went in my previous episode, My True Gender is Theater Kid, the James Frankie Thomas story. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at teenpeoplepod and on Tumblr, teenpeoplepod.tumblr.com. And check out my own website, annasoper.ca. If you liked this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app and tell all your friends. I'll be back next week with another episode of Teen People. Until then... I'm Anna Soper.